I can see it now. Did it like enlarge? <laughs> All right. If you want to turn with me, we are working our way through Colossians. If you want to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, uh, we're going to start in verse 1 today. We're going to be looking at Colossians 1, or sorry, 2, 1 to 7. That's our text for today. So I'm going to read that and pray, and then we'll get into the text. Um, if you are able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? And I'm reading from the English Standard Version, um, which is the version in your pew if you are using that pew Bible. All right. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent with you in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, for your word, and we ask that as we study this particular text that you would teach us today. May the Holy Spirit be our, our teacher, um, opening our hearts and our minds to the deep riches that are in your word. Um, I pray that uh, that you would fill me with your spirit and speak to me and speak through me, God, so that as I'm communicating your word, that um, it is it is falling on our hearts and our minds and and nurturing us in the areas that we need to be nurtured in in our individual walk with faith, but also as a body of believers. So we lift this time up to you, and God, we just pray that you are honored while we are here studying your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, just a real quick recap as to what we've covered in chapter 1. Paul's writing the church in Colossae, and there's been some kind of heresy that is beginning to creep into the church we don't know exactly what that was, but most likely it is either uh, the Judaizers that would go around and and basically tell Gentile churches that if they became Christians, they have to first become Jews and they have to practice the law before they can really become Christians. So it was either something like that or maybe an early form of Gnosticism, which didn't come to its full form until the second century. But... Um, and there are, there are some other theories as to what's going on, but from what we can see in the letter, Paul is addressing things that, that were uh, in line with those two lines of thinking. Um, the chapter one, if I could sum it up in just a short phrase, I would say Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient for everything uh, because 
there's an indication that whatever this whatever is being taught, they're being taught in the church there that Christ was not enough, that there was more to do either on their own part or more to do from someone else. And so as we look at the as we look at the text today and you're if you picked up a bulletin with the notes, you got to, we're going to cover two points. The first one that we're going to look at is that Paul desires unity in the church. And we're going to focus on verses 2 and 3 with this. Paul desires unity in the church. The first thing that I noticed about the text when I was studying it this week is that Paul's heart for these people is, is just abounding with love and, and concern for them. Um, and so it's Paul's, Paul's heart of compassion that, that really stood out to me this week. He uses the word, he says in verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. So he's struggling for this group of believers. And that Greek word is, is the word that we get our word agonized from. It means to agonize. And so he was, he was agonizing over them with whatever this, whatever this false teaching is. And he's concerned about them uh, falling into this belief. And so... The thing, though, the, the thing, though, that I think was so overwhelming to me when I was reading this was that he, he's agonizing. He, so it's, it's that level of concern and compassion he has for them. And he's never even met these people. This is not a church that Paul planted. Epaphras planted it. And we have no, we have no evidence or indication that Paul ever went to Colossae. Um, and he says in verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, which is a neighboring city, and for all who have not seen me face to face. And so Paul's never even seen these people. And he's agonizing with that level of compassion. Now, as Americans, I, I'm speaking generally, you might not be this kind of a person. I know it's something I struggle with, but I'm very much like most of, I think, our culture where I, str- I struggle with the trap of out of sight, out of mind. If something is not, if something's not in my immediate context of what's going on in that day, it tends to be something that's out of my mind. And I don't think of it until something something causes it to become part of my immediate context. And I, so I want you to think about like your prayer time. Think through the time that you set aside daily or weekly or however often you do it. Um, and the time that you spend in prayer. And I want you to think about when is the last time that you prayed for someone or you prayed for a church in another country? Now, you might be a person who is very disciplined and you have your prayer list and you've got all your missionaries that you're praying for and their missions and that kind of stuff. And if you're that kind of person, then this isn't going to apply to you. But if you're not that kind of person, most people I think don't tend to think of people who are in other countries because they're out of sight. And so they're out of our minds. But if you think about it, like Christians are being persecuted every day for their faith in Jesus. And we tend to not really think of that or remember that or be concerned all that much about that. Even though Paul says in his writings, it makes very clear that we are all one body. And so if one part of the body is suffering, the whole body suffers. But we tend to not 
have that in our minds, not focus on that in our prayers. There are places in other countries where parents are afraid that when their kids go off to school that they might not come back alive because of the hostility toward believers. There are churches in the Middle Eastern countries that live in fear that when they gather like we're gathering right now that they're going to be bombed during the gathering or that they'll be gunned down when they walk out the doors after they're done gathering. There are places around the world that don't even have full copies of the Bible. So we, I think we take for granted, I mean, I've got probably 15 copies of multiple versions in my, in my office. And there are places around the world that don't have an entire copy. They might have a book of the Bible. And there are people who put their lives at risk to smuggle Bibles into those countries. There are believers in countries that are so poor that they don't have enough food for meals each day. And I know I myself, at least, tend to forget about that stuff going on. But Paul does not fall into this out-of-sight, out-of-mind trap. He's never met this group of Christians, and yet he is struggling and agonizing for them because of the theological battle that they've been engaged in with this false teaching. And so he's, he's agonizing with them and he's agonizing for them because he wants them to be united, which is what he tells us in our text. He uses this phrase, knit together in love. That is language. If something is knit together or woven together, it's, it's put together to make a unit, to not be separated. Now, unity is something that is on Paul's mind all the time. But there's no indication from what we have in this letter that there's any kind of division or disunity in the church. So when that's the case, you know, we don't have a lot of, we don't have extra biblical sources that tell us much about what's going on in Colossae. We basically only have Paul's letter. So it's not even a two-way conversation. We don't even have a letter that maybe they wrote back to him. So we're going from what we can see that he addresses in the text to try to figure out what's going on. And what he addresses in the text does not indicate that there's any kind of threat, that there's disunity going on in the church. So when that's the case, and yet he brings it up, we need to ask ourselves why. Why, why did Paul introduce this subject into the letter in verse 2 when he says that he wants them to be knit together in love? And here's, here's what, it, what I think it boils down to. Paul understands a very basic principle that we also today in the church in America need to understand as well. And that principle is this, that if a group of the Colossian believers, and it doesn't matter how many, it could be two or it could be a hundred. I don't know how big the church was. So it doesn't matter if it's a small amount or a large amount. But if a group of the believers in Colossae were to accept and believe this false teaching that's being introduced in the church, the natural result is going to be division in the church. The fellowship of the church would be divided into two different camps. And I think Paul's trying to get ahead of that because that's a dangerous place to be. If, if the church is united under one head, which is Christ, 
then his followers cannot be, in fact, they must not be divided. And so Paul understands that this is a danger, and he understands that unity requires two things. And these are in your notes, I think. Unity requires, the first thing is authentic love or a right love and compassion for those who belong to Christ. And that comes in verse 2, where he says, I want you to be knit together in love. I'll give you you a second to write that down if you're taking notes. So that's the first thing. Authentic love, a right love and compassion for those who belong to Christ. The other thing, the other requirement for unity in the church is accurate theology. Accurate theology, a right understanding and knowledge of truth. Comes from verse 3. So, Will you go back just for a second so they have a little extra time to write that if they're taking notes? Okay, now you can go. Um, So if we look at verses 2 and 3, he says, now verse 1, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged and being knit together in love. And so there's this bond of love. Um, and, and we know as we've studied Scripture, and you know from your own study of Scripture, that there is, that Paul's talking about agape, which is unconditional love that is not based on feeling or motivated by any kind of thing like that. But it's, it's a love that is a decision of the will. And that's the kind of love that God reaches out to us with so he says being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of god's mystery which is christ and then verse three in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge now remember if this is gnosticism that is being introduced into the church they're saying gnosticism is based on the belief that there is um there is this special knowledge that only the spiritual elite can achieve And Paul is reassuring them that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. So, authentic love and accurate theology. Um, Now, one is dealing with our heart, the actions, the things we practice in our life, and the other is dealing with our mind, which is our thinking. And we have to understand that accurate theology or accurate thinking leads to authentic doctrine— which is what guides our actions and what we practice. So we develop a theology of what we believe about God from what we see in Scripture, and then we, then we fashion doctrines around that, and the doctrines are to guide, guide our practice, the way we live. The two are very much linked together, which means the opposite is true as well. Wrong theology or wrong thinking leads to wrong doctrine, or actions and practices. So authentic love and accurate theology, if either one of those is neglected, then unity among Christ's 
his followers deteriorates. If either one of those is neglected, the unity of the body deteriorates. So it's important for Paul to communicate this because they don't know him personally. Because there's no indication that he visited the church at all and he speaks about not seeing them face to face. It's necessary for him to communicate that to them so that they understand his desire for them to be united in faith, hope, and love, and they understand that he truly does love them and he desires their good because then it'll be easier for them to trust him, this man that they've never seen, they've probably just heard about. So that's, that's our first point. Paul desires unity in the church. That's not just in Colossae. That's, in, that's a theme that is in most of his, his writings. Uh, the second point in your notes that we want to look at, and this is what I want to really focus on the most today, is uh, that Paul warns against deceptive arguments, and this comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. He warns against deceptive arguments. In verse 4, Paul specifically stated why it's important for him to stress the unity of the believers in Colossae under the lordship of Jesus. And he says it in verse 4 where he says, I tell you this so that, and so he's just, when he says that, so that, that means everything that I've just said, here's the reason for why I just said it. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. No one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. Now, since the time of the early church until today, Satan has used persuasive people with smooth tongues to utter fine-sounding arguments to lure people away from the truth. Usually, it's something subtle that sounds just like the truth, but it has something that's just slightly off enough to lead people to believe something that either undermines the character of God or leads them to believe something that deceives them concerning salvation. So you have in your notes um, a list of things like on the back side of your notes. Some of them are names and some of them are dates and that kind of stuff. And so what I'm going to go through is I want to go through just some examples of church history where this kind of thing where Satan has been using people to do this kind of a thing um, to try to lure the church into false teaching. And so the first one, Paul dealt with the Judaizers everywhere he went. Those were the people who were saying you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian and you have to practice the law. And then he also, like in this situation, could potentially be uh, confronting the early stages of Gnosticism. And so Paul wasn't the one teaching that. Later on, we're going to get into people who are teaching it, but we know that Paul was the one who was trying to correct it. The Apostle John dealt with Gnosticism in his letters that were sent to Asia Minor, and he most likely dealt with it in person when he ministered to the church in Ephesus for much of the last 20 to 30 years of his life. He spent mo most of that time in Ephesus, and so he was dealing with that. If you read his letters... Um, you can see the theme of him combating Gnosticism in that. Full-fledged Gnosticism came into bloom in 
full bloom in the second century and became one of two of the great threats to the church at that time, the other one being the Roman government. But we can look back through church history. We can see these fine-sounding arguments all along the timeline. Prior to, if we fast forward a little bit, prior to the Reformation, um, Catholic teaching on uh, purchases of indulgences, which was one of the big things that Martin Luther was, stirred him to confront the church, that, that kind of stuff was shaping the way people were thinking and were not necessarily biblically supported. And so you can see that's a large part of the timeline, but you can see things like that going on along that timeline. If you get into, when we get into the 1800s, the 1800s, there was a new version of Christian teaching popping up on every corner in the 1800s, especially in America. Um, Joseph Smith founded the Mormon Church in 1830. I'm not going to get into all the things that they that these these churches or these movements taught. Um, this, that's not the point for today, but if you're interested, I'd be happy to talk to you about him. So uh, he founded the Mormon Church in 1830. Um, and I'll get, I'm also going to, after I give you this list, I'm going to explain to you what they were, what the point was, what they were trying to do. Um, a small group of people founded the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1863. You don't have to write a small group of people. You, you can just write Seventh-day Adventist Church, but... In eight, the 1870s, Charles Taze Russell founded the Jehovah's Witnesses. In 1879, Mary Baker Eddy founded the Christian Science Church. Fast forward into the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century, L. Ron Hubbard started the Church of Scientology in 1953. Now, as you're finishing taking notes, let me just say, um, to, be, to be fair to the Seventh-day Adventists, if you read books on Christian cults, that groups that come out of Christianity but end up adopting beliefs that are not biblical um in the last 20 years or so 30 years the those books on cults have dropped the seventh-day adventists but um they still have some doctrine that they believe that that uh i question um all right so all of these were churches or movements that based a lot of what they taught on the Christian Bible. But each one had aberrant teachings that deviated slightly from what we see in the text of Scripture. Some of them were able to do it because, uh, like especially in the 1800s, a lot of people were illiterate. 
the Mormon church was so successful because they were, they were, they came through the Midwest. And when they came into Illinois, where Missouri and Illinois, where they settled for such a long time, and that's where a lot of their growth came, um, they were dealing with people who were literate. And so they were able to say, here's what the Bible says, and people believed them. In fact, the church that I worked at before, my last church um, before we moved back to this area, was in that area, and they, that church started in a log cabin not very far from Nauvoo, and it was a halfway stopping point on the way up from the Quincy area where you could water your horses and you could rest and that kind of stuff. And they encountered, the Mormons encountered that church. But the, the church at, his name was Abram Golden. He's the guy that owned the cabin. The church at Golden's Point, um, they could read. And so the Mormons had been real successful at, at telling people who couldn't read what, what they wanted them to believe, what the Bible said. And when they got there, they tried to do the same thing with that church. And they said, hold on a second. We know, we, we can read and we know that that's not what the Bible says. And so that's one of the reasons why they were so successful in the 1800s. But what was going on there is they were all, they were trying to establish in the public eye what made them different, what set them apart from all the other churches and so they that was that was the mindset if we can if we can establish something that makes us different and convince people that we have the right teaching then people will abandon all these other groups and they'll come and they will be a part of our group so they emphasized what made them unique among christianity and because they were slight deviations in a lot of in a lot of ways some of them like over time they grew and they become they became something that were not just slight deviations but they a lot of them started out that way because they're slight deviations much of the public was swayed to join membership of these groups unaware the whole time that they were being indoctrinated with ideas that undermine the character of the trinity so under the guise of christian doctrine many were led astray into false teaching And this is a problem still today in America. We have churches in our culture today that teach things that would have been considered heresy, not only in the early church, but all of the church history up until about the second half and really the latter part of the 20th century. It, things that churches are teaching today would have been considered heresy until I don't know, the 1980s, 1990s. And those churches have convinced millions of people that they have the correct understanding of Scripture, which sounds a whole lot like the 1800s. We have figured out whether it was, there are, you know, and, the, and I'm, I'm going to list some things. These are actual excuses or actual defenses I've heard people say. Um, you know, they talk about how the teachings of Christ are so primitive and out of touch with reality. Well, that was so long ago, it can't, we can't possibly expect us to guide our lives by that today. We've, we've progressed so much since the time of the writings in the Old and New Testaments. We're better informed. We know, you know, we, we've figured out how to really translate the original text. And my personal favorite, and when I say that, that's sarcasm because it angers me so much. T 
today we have a deeper compassion than those in the church who went before us. And so what we have in many churches today in America is the church can now be an all-inclusive, what boils down to social club. We're just a group of people getting together socially and we take the name Christian. Now, when the church is swept away by fine-sounding arguments that are not supported by Scripture, or if the church just ignores what God makes very clear in his word, it travels down a path that gradually veers away from Christ. And if it bases its doctrine on unbiblical grounds, especially if it undermines the character of the Trinity, then it ceases to be the church. And there may be people in culture today who would disagree with me and be angry at me for saying that, but they can take any name they want and they can say whatever they, whatever they want to say to convince you that they're right. But if those who reject the clear teachings of Scripture, if they hold to things that are clearly anti-biblical, then they do not belong to Christ, and therefore they are not his church. It's only a social club that's no different than your book club that you might be a part of or the people that you play bingo with on Friday. And that's not... I'm not assuming you guys are old and play bingo on Fridays, that that's the best way you have to spend your Friday night. If you like bingo, great. But I wasn't... I could just see somebody coming up to me afterward and saying, was that a, was that a crack at my age? Um, the point was... <laughs> If the church doesn't hold to biblical doctrine, um, then they cease to be anything but just a gathering of people who are like-minded or like-interested, and they just like to spend time together. The lack of healthy biblical doctrine guiding the lives of the members of the group deems that it is not a Christian church. And Paul, that is Paul's concern for the Colossians. He's concerned about that happening in the church in Colossae, which is why I think he's going to get on top of this ahead of time before it develops and blooms into something bigger. All right, so let me wrap this up by just telling you what we're going to do for the next four weeks as we work through chapter two. In chapter two, Paul gives four examples of ways that Satan tries to deceive the church with fine-sounding arguments. He, Satan tries to deceive with philosophical arguments. That's verses 18 to 15, and Paul's going to combat that. Satan tries to use people to uh, deceive people with legalistic arguments. That's verses 16 and 17. He uses arguments in mysticism. That's verses 18 and 19. And arguments in asceticism, verses 20 to 23. So he uses people to try to get into the church, creep into the church, get a, get a foot in the door, and introduce the stuff that is sometimes just a slight deviation but it's something that if I'm, if I'm just off this much after years of travel, you know how that works. You will be so far away from Christ, you won't even be able, you won't, you won't even recognize him in the midst of his people. And so we're going to focus on that for the next four weeks and look at those 
Look at those things and look at what Paul says to combat them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, for a letter that deals with some hard things here. For a letter that helps us to um, be able to look at our own culture and say, you know what? I see that in some churches. And especially if this is Gnosticism. Gnosticism has reared its ugly head in lots of different forms that have been successful at deceiving people, but it's just a new a new form of first and second century Gnosticism. And so um, it's something that we still deal with today. So I just pray that from the text today that we were able to understand the need and, and the urgency to be able to um, to prioritize unity in the body, which requires a right and authentic love and an accurate theology. Help us to prioritize that and make that something that is of the utmost importance to us in the church because it is to you. We see it in Paul's heart, and Paul's heart is reflecting your heart. And so um, may that be May that be a burning, overwhelming desire in our hearts as a church here in Metamora. And Father, I just pray that as we go from here today that you would be glorified and that you would draw us closer to you this week, reveal yourself more to us this week, and help us to walk more intimately with you. In Jesus' name, amen.